All right, thank you, Rich, and thank you for singing. I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Last week, we were in the first half of Revelation 11. We looked at the, uh, the two witnesses who came and prophesied with great power, and, uh, and then they were ultimately attacked and overcome by the enemy, the beast, who came out of the abyss and killed them, and they, their bo- dead bodies lay in the street for three days, and people gave gifts and celebrated their demise. Uh, and I've had numerous people come to me and said, I had no idea. That's one of those passages that I would read and go, I don't know what to do with that, so I'm just going to skip over and read something else. And my response uniformly was, me too. <laughs> and it was uh, having to preach through it, it forced me to dive in, and what is the Lord teaching us in this? Well, the text that we come to this morning is a little more clear, and uh, is one that, uh, that I think we'll find great encouragement from. It's uh, focusing our attention on the seventh of the seven trumpets. So please follow me, Revelation 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, excuse me, verse 15. Actually, I'll start in 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, or who is, and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The text that we're looking at this morning is about the final victory, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of his and all of our enemies, which really is the theme of the entire book of Revelation, the final consummation of all things. Now, I've said before, and I want to reiterate, Revelation is not to be read as a timeline of future events, to be looked at as a strict chronology, but rather we find uh, the, the, uh, the description of calamities and temporal uh, judgments being poured out in our day, a persecution of the conflict between good and evil, of the, the forces of God and the forces of the enemy, conflicting, leading up to that final consummation. And we find this in really this story played out in seven cycles leading to what we see here as uh, the, I guess, the second cycle that's described leading us to the final return and glorious victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It describes this conflict that rages on even now with the assurance to suffering believers that Jesus really does win the victory, that the time comes when the the age that we're in will, will end. The conflict will be over. The battle will be done, and Christ will triumph, and we'll be at peace. Now, 
As I said, we, we, we see this uh, played over and over in the book of Revelation from different perspectives. If you go to chapter 21, you see the perspective of the new heaven and the new earth. The, from the, uh, you see the, the teaching of the new heaven and the earth from the perspective of the saints. All things made new. He wipes away every tear from our eyes. And there's no more, more death or mourning or crying or pain. Here we see the consummation of all things and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth from the perspective of those in heaven rejoicing over the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's presented to us really in two great hymns, one sung by the angelic host and the second sung by the 24 elders who we've seen once before in our study of the book of Revelation. So let's take a look. Let's dive in to this incredible passage of Scripture about the final triumph of our Lord Jesus. Now, the preparation for us. The, the, the table was set, as it were, in chapter 10, verses 5 and following. If you would turn there and see, in, in chapter 10, we're in an interlude. We've had the first six of the seven trumpets, 10 and, and the first part of 11, we have a, a bit of an interlude uh, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, where we see the people of God being protected. In verses 5 And following, we read these words, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophet. When the seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, that's it. That will be the final consummation. So we come to verse 15 in chapter 11, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And we know that, as it says in chapter 10, or uh, chapter 10, this is it. This is the final trumpet, the final consummation. Now, as I've said, the seals and the trumpets uh, signify the tribulations that afflict the world around us, those temporal judgments that have been taking place from the time Jesus returned to heaven up until the time he returns once again. And they serve as warnings to those who are outside of the Lord Jesus. If you are not in Christ, here's your warning. Look at the catastrophes around you and realize that's nothing compared to what is to come. But it is a warning to flee from that wrath. And in chapter 9, we find this chilling description of the plagues that accompany the sixth trumpet. And then we find this, this really uh, this disturbing report at the end of chapter 9, which says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, <coughs> which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we see these plagues, we see death all around them, and it says, but they still wouldn't repent. And you want to say, what in the world is it going to take? And the reality is some simply will not repent, which is a great tragedy. So here we find the seventh trumpet, the final conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have these two great hymns proclaiming his victory. The first hymn in verse 15 is sung by the angelic host, and they proclaim the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 again, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, do these words sound familiar to you? 
Have you heard these words before? Some of you going, yes, and he shall reign, right? You're, you're, you're already singing the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. Now, let me just back up and give you a real brief music lesson here, okay? Uh, Handel wrote the Messiah, uh, and all of the text is scripture. So he wrote the music, but he, he drew all of the, the, all of the text for, Handel, from the, for the Messiah from the Bible. The first part was covering the, the, the prophecy and the birth of the Lord Jesus. The second part of the Messiah covers his death, his burial, and his triumphal resurrection. And the third part covers his return and final victory. So when you see Handel's Messiah, many times we think, oh, we do that at Christmas. Uh, well, some say, oh, no, we actually do that at Easter. Well, yeah, we do it at Christmas because it covers Christmas. We do it at Easter because it covers Christmas. Uh, and we do it all the time because it covers his, the triumphal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we find in this text is that the earthly kingdom gives way to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say this is the theme verse of the entire book, that Jesus conquers his enemies. He triumphs and shares that victory with us. That's the grand design of this book, that he is assuring his people, many of whom suffer affliction or persecution of the final victory of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. As you look at verse 15, it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And that's singular, the kingdom of the world, not plural. It's not all the kingdoms have been drawn together. It's the kingdom. Now, some people look at that and go, oh, that's telling us there's going to be a one-world government during the last days. No, it's not. It's really not. What John is speaking about here is there are many kingdoms, there are many rulers, but the entire world from, our, from, from, from the vantage point that we can see, it appears to be under the rule of one pernicious ruler whose name is Satan. He claims authority and dominion over the fallen world, but he only does what the Lord has permitted him to do. But if we look at 1 John 5, 19, it says, we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Scripture says, Satan is, in essence, the ruler of this world, at least apparently so. Ephesians 6, 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and in the heavenly places. You know, when we read in the news, we read about countries like know, Great Britain or France or Russia or China or North Korea. These are nations that wield great power in our world. But the power behind these powers in the present world is Satan himself moving us, moving countries, moving powers in directions that they ought not go. Now, we know that the, hand, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. We know that God is sovereign over everything, but in the present age, at least in appearance and at least in very much, uh, much of the influence of this is under the rule and under the dominion of the enemy. So, when these <clears throat> angelic voices cry out in verse 15, they're saying Satan has been defeated, Christ has won the victory, the dominion of Satan has been, uh, been dispensed and dispersed and crushed once and for all, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. One of my commentators, the Wellman commentator, uh, Thomas Brooks, says the point here is that Christ rules as the sole and unopposed king 
over the whole world because the one to whom dominion once seemed to belong, and that's Satan, has now had to give it up. It's a picture of the undisputed sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a picture of, an undi- of the undisputed sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven says that all history is headed toward the fulfillment of a divine plan. And we read of that in Ephesians chapter 1, that the mystery of God's will, or it speaks of the mystery of God's will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Jesus unites all things, or God unites all things in the Lord Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. Anthony Hokema said, we must see history as moving toward the goal of a finally restored and glorified universe, a new heaven and a new earth. So here we have the proclamation of that new heaven and that new earth that will never, never, ever end. Now, I want you to notice who it is is that's singing this hymn. It's the angels. The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Loud voices in heaven, typically those refer to angels. But don't you notice how they speak? They speak the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. See, we speak of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Angels don't need a Messiah. He's their Lord, but they don't need redeeming. They don't need a Messiah. It's the Lord's Messiah. He's our Messiah. He's not the angel's Messiah. He is their Lord and their God and their King. And the proclamation here, again, this is a future event, and they're proclaiming this as an accomplished fact, when this happens, when they sing this hymn, it will have been done. The final consummation of all things will have taken place. This is not the way things are now. It's how things will be on that glorious day in the future. Now, I want you to think with me back uh, to the temptation of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. If you turn your Bibles there. In Matthew 4, right after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. And Satan appears to him and tempts him to turn stones into bread to alleviate his hunger, purpose being use your miraculous power for your own personal benefit, which he never did. But his third temptation that we find here in verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut to world dominion. But that shortcut bypassed the cross. No redemption. I'm glad to give you the whole world. You can rule it all you want as long as you don't redeem the world and create a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord Jesus clearly was too wise for that, obviously. He would not disqualify himself from being the redeemer. He wasn't interested in merely temporal kingdoms. He rules forever and ever and ever. Now, this doesn't mean that the earthly kingdoms are all going to be Christianized. Okay? The Bible doesn't teach universalism where everybody's saved. Rather, it teaches us that all authority, all power, all the rulers of this world yield and give way 
to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. The wicked will be judged and dispensed, and the people of God will be part of this new glorious heaven and earth. He will reign forever and ever. Some believe that this passage is telling us, uh, is predicting a millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ. I don't know how you harmonize a thousand years that will end, and then something else happens with he will reign forever and ever. Uh, and we're going to talk about the millennium more in a later message, but I don't believe that's what this is talking about at all. I believe that this is talking about the final consummation and the victory of the Lord Jesus. Now, this trumpet, the seventh trumpet, is different from all the others. We have these great terrors declared in the first six trumpet. But I want you to think about it. If you are an enemy of God, if you're back in Psalm chapter 2, you're the nations raging and the kings taking counsel uh, uh, together with other kings against the Lord and against his anointed one, and you hear the seventh trumpet declaring the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus and he will reign forever and ever. Are you going to celebrate that? This is probably the most dreadful trumpet of all because this is the last trumpet. This is the end of the road. This is judgment for those who have made themselves the enemies of God. They've set themselves up against the rule of God. They've imagined that they somehow have great power and they don't need to answer to God. And so when their kingdoms crumble and their splendor and their authority is, 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 is done away with before the king of kings and lord of lords, it will be a great catastrophe for them. So the first hymn, the hymn of the angels, declares the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus. But the second hymn is the hymn of the 24 elders in heaven. Verse 16 tells us they fell on their faces and they worshiped back in Revelation chapter 11 once again. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, you remember the 24 elders in, in Revelation chapter 4 who fell on their faces before the Lord and they worshiped God in the throne room of heaven. And we said then, <clears throat> the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Now, not, not literally those individuals, but it's the Old Testament and the New Testament church all together gathered in heaven. It's all the saints of heaven gathered around the throne of God. And in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says those elders cast their, ca- their crowns down before God's throne. And it's important that we recognize that those 24 elders were, they had crowns and they were dressed in white. Angels are never described as having crowns. That's, re- that's reserved for the saints. Paul says in, uh, speaks of the, the crown of righteousness that's awarded to all those who love Jesus appearing. James speaks of the crown of life that is promised to all those who love him. Peter promises that when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive a crown of glory, receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. And Jesus promises those in the church at Smyrna, if you overcome, you will receive the crown of life. The, the, these promises of crowns are for the saints, not for angels. So this second hymn is being sung by the redeemed church in heaven. And the 12 of the Old Testament, the 12 of the New, points to the completeness of those gathered saints before the throne. 
So even as the angels are declaring the undisputed sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, these 24 elders, the church of all time, is bowing in the presence of God, bowing to his sovereign rule. Now, if I went around the room and said, do you believe that God is sovereign? You'd all go, well, of course I believe that God is sovereign. And we are a Reformed Baptist church, right? So we're supposed to believe that. We believe that God is sovereign over everything, over all the affairs of men. He is sovereign over, uh, over the, the, the hard things that happen as well as the good things that happen. He's sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over everything. Very interesting. There are those who would say, oh, yes, I believe God is sovereign, except for an area of salvation. That's, that's free will. But it's real interesting because when you pray with them, their only hope that God can answer what they're asking is for God to be sovereign. It's quite interesting. But we know that he is sovereign in creation and providence and election and calling and preserving and persevering in judgment in every aspect of life and all of human history. God ordained all things that come to pass. He's sovereign. Now, the enemy of our souls disputes that. He would say God is not in control. If you look all around us, you see what? You see chaos. You see sin reigning. You see unbelievers. You see wicked people prospering. How can you possibly believe God's in control of that mess? Well, by all appearances, things do seem to be out of control. Some of the things that we have to contend with we can't imagine what could God's purpose be here. It can be perplexing. And so we have to believe by faith that which God's word teaches. But on that day, on that day, not only will we hear the affirmation that Jesus is Lord, that he is sovereign, not only will we hear about that, every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Faith will give way to sight and the redeemed saints in heaven will be overjoyed and fall on their faces as we all together worship our Lord and God. So let's look at this song of the saints in heaven. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, or who is, and who was. For you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Now, this, this song basically has five themes. It, I, I can't really say five stanzas. They're too short to be stanzas. But five themes. And the first theme is thanksgiving. We give thanks to you. We recognize that the rule of the Lord Jesus is for our benefit, that his conquering of his enemies, he shares that glorious victory with us, and we rejoice in his presence. We give him thanks. But secondly, they describe the Lord in their song. Lord God Almighty who is and who was. Now, do you notice anything unusual in that proclamation? Lord God Almighty who is and who was. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, if you would, please. Revelation 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And again in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then again in chapter 4 and verse 8, 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around them. Uh, and within, in day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we come to chapter 11. And the song of the saints in heaven. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing? Do you, do you see something missing there, guys? Is something left out? Did John sort of overlook something? Or maybe the glorified saints in heaven forgot an important description of the... No. There, once we get to heaven, once the, all, the consummation of all things, once, once the new heaven and the new earth have been established and Jesus establishes reign forever and ever and ever, there is no is to come anymore. It is. So no longer will we speak of God who is to come because he will have come. And so now he is and he was. And he is, and he is, and he always is. The eternally present Lord of glory. In this vision, which is future, but in this vision, the time is. Time has come to an end. The future becomes the present. And all our future hopes will be fully realized. Just, just think about that for a minute. All our future hopes will be fully Realize when, 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 when Paul says that present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed, or that the glory to be revealed far outweighs present afflictions. We're hoping that's true. Now, we know, actually, we know it's true, and our hopes are set on the fact that it's true, but in that day, we'll go, it really is true. It's more true than we realized, more than we ever dared even to dream. So as he describes the Lord, he describes the Lord as one who was eternally and who eternally is. And then thirdly, it tells us that the Lord Jesus has taken his great power and he has begun to reign. He has reigned over all of the earth for all time. I said a moment ago that it's apparent that Satan is the ruler of this world, but the reality is Hebrews tells us that he, Jesus, sustains all things by his powerful Word. In Colossians 1.17, it says, in him, all things hold together. Now, in the present age, his rule and reign are not visible. We cannot see all things under his control. But we believe it by faith. On that day, visibly, he will assume power. And it will be evident for all to see, Jesus is Lord. He has taken control and he begins to reign with all of his enemies under his feet. In Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says that after Jesus has offered sacrifice for sin, he sat down at God's right hand and waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 tells us that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Those, those two references are taken from Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. So much of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. So here we find uh, other references to the Old Testament as well. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And on that day, Jesus will conquer his enemies. They'll be made a footstool. They will be, uh, his feet will be on their necks, as it were, demonstrating his ultimate conquest. The fourth theme we find in this song 
You've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. The fourth theme is that he has judged the nations. They raged against him. The rulers took counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2 tells us. At the end of verse 18, it says that the time has come for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. And so this judgment has been promised, has been foretold throughout biblical history. The enemies of the Lord Jesus have been storing up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. Now that day has come. Now remember, these are the ones who persecuted the church. These are the ones who slayed the prophets and those who would seek to love the Lord, serve the Lord. These are the ones who killed those two witnesses and were so happy about it, they gave presents and celebrated and refused to allow them to be buried. Not speaking of a literal event, but of the, uh, of the uh, numerous times, multiple times throughout human history that God's people have been martyred for their faith. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment when it says, he will destroy the destroyers of the earth. On that day, what will be your attitude? What will be be going on in your heart regarding the judgment of God? What will you think of God's judgment? Will you be confused when you see how horrible it is poured out on those who appear to be powerful? Will there be sorrow? Will you be frustrated because there may be people that you love who are not converted and God's judgment falls on them? Will you be conflicted about that? Well, here's the amazing thing. On that day, we will see perfectly. We will so fully be aligned in our hearts with the Lord Jesus that what he loves, we will love, and what he hates, we will hate. And we'll be more concerned about the fact that our loved ones hated Jesus and that offense than we will about the fact that Jesus then consigns them to punishment. I, I had a, a dear friend many years ago whose sister lived a very profligate, sinful life. She made a, a profession when she was eight or nine, but she lived a, a life of, of total rebellion against God and wanted nothing to do with God. And ultimately, she died from the result, the effects of her sin. And people were talking about, oh, but she made a profession. We can, you know, take comfort that she's in heaven. And, and this dear sister said, I can't say that. I don't believe she is in heaven. And she said, I'm sad about that. But here's the thing. As much as I love my sister, I love God more, and she hates my God. I would say that's a rare perspective for a person to have in this life. It's hard to get to that kind of perspective in this life. But in that day, there will be no conflict of heart. There will be no misgivings or confusion or, Lord, why not my loved one? Now's the time to be asking, Lord, what about my loved one? Pursuing them and praying for them and doing all that we can to seek to bring them to faith in Christ. But on that day, our hearts will be so completely aligned with the mercy of God and the judgment of God 
so fully in tune with the glory of God and the purposes of God, there will be no mixed emotions and no conflicts in our heart whatsoever. We will be in perfect agreement with God and with all his ways. Now, the Lord says, I I believe it's in Ezekiel, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, calling out for men to repent. We will have no more sorrow over their death than God does. But I don't see in Scripture God jumping up and down saying, I can't wait to, to pour out my wrath on these wicked people. It's a vindication of his righteousness. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. There's, there's mystery there that we can't fully wrap our hands around. But we can say we will have no more conflict than the Lord does, whatever that looks like. We'll be perfectly aligned with the heart of God over those who suffer from his judgment. Our grief will be against their, over their offense against a holy God who has loved and redeemed us from our sins. Well, that's the fourth theme in this heavenly hymn. The, the fifth theme <clears throat> focuses on the rewards. Again, again, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Who gets rewarded? Your servants, the prophets, the saints, all who reverence God's name, both small and great. Now, Paul, I don't think, or excuse me, John, I don't think is, is uh, delineating different categories here. Now, there are some saints that aren't prophets, But those who are rewarded are those who truly reverence God's name. And some are small, and some are great. And the great cause of thanksgiving here is that God rewards his people. Now, we don't fully understand what these rewards involve. We know that on that day, as we stand before our king, our master will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he will give us a crown of righteousness or a crown of life or a crown of glory. Remember, Jesus promised many different rewards in chapters 3 and 4 to those beleaguered churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, to those who overcome. He promised rewards. Over and over in the New Testament, we see the promise that we will share in his glory, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, the reality is we can't possibly conceive of what those rewards really will be. Scripture tells us no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. He has told us some of what those rewards will be like, but it is so much greater than we could ever grasp or imagine. Now, we're going to find a fuller and a more glorious description of heaven later in, in, in the book of Revelation. In fact, in chapter 22, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he's done. So this is going to come up over and over again throughout this, this study. But these rewards are given to us by God's grace. It's not something we earn. It's all of grace. And yet the Lord says, I will reward each according to what he's done. So we don't earn salvation, and we don't earn rewards, and yet there is somehow a direct link between what we do and the rewards that we receive. I can't fully explain that. It's kind of like faith without works is dead. Faith, true faith in Christ works. We're not saved by faith and works. We're saved by faith that works. 
and we were ordained for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should do them. And as we live out our faith by obedience, he rewards those good works. I don't understand why or how we can be accumulating rewards, even as those who hate God would be storing up or accumulating wrath. But that's what Scripture says, and it says we ought to look forward to that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But I want you to see this. The rewards that he's giving are not simply reserved for the great and the important and the super Christians. It's not just apostles and prophets and preachers of really, really big churches who lead thousands of people to Christ. It's not for the super Christians. It's for all who fear his name, both small and great. The humble Christian who labors behind the scenes, who seems unappreciated in this life, the missionary who labors on the far side of nobody knows where it is and sees very limited fruit in this life, and yet he's been faithful for years and wondering, Lord, is what I did, did it even matter? And he hears, well done, good and faithful servant, enter to the joy of your master. The exhaustive kid's Sunday school worker who faithfully prays and labors and teaches and loves children week after week after week. And maybe you wonder, does it even make any difference what I'm doing? Well, if we look not simply to temporal impact, temporal results, temporal fruit, but if we look to the fact that God says, not even a cup of cold water given in my name will fail to be rewarded, then we can say, yes, it makes a difference. And we can serve with faithfulness, with endurance, and with zeal. If he's a a disciple of Jesus Christ, he will certainly not lose his reward. Now, the chapter closes in verse 19 with, with, with a glimpse into the heavenly temple. It says, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavenly hail. Now, let me say here. So much of Revelation is symbolic, not literal. The two witnesses earlier in, the, in, in chapter 10, or in chapter 11, rather, I don't believe it was two literal people. I believe it's symbolic of the church, which witnesses in power, but at times also suffers persecution. I don't believe this is the literal temple, but rather I believe it's a spiritual picture of a greater spiritual reality. When it speaks of the ark, The Ark of the Covenant was concealed within the veil of the most holy place of the Holy of Holies. It was hidden from from view, and only the high priest, only once a year on the Day of Atonement, only with blood, was allowed to enter in. But it tells us in uh, the Gospels when Jesus died on the cross, that, that, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, revealing the way into the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, The Bible doesn't tell us this, but let's take a step back and just think, if I were serving as a priest in the temple when that happened, and I were rejecting Jesus, what would I likely to be do if I kept rejecting Jesus? It's likely I would have sewn the curtain back up, right? And that's probably what they did. I doubt once that curtain was torn in two that the priest said, oh, wow, I guess God wants the the, the ark exposed after all, we'll leave it open. No, I'm sure they sewed it back up until it was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman armies. But the ark represents to the believer the fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
or with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covering of the ark is called the mercy seat or the atonement covering. And that's the meeting place between God and man symbolically. Now we have the throne of grace where we have bold, confident access, Hebrews 4 tells us. The temple's wide open, and whoever desires may come and enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord. Bold confidence to his throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. But please understand this. For those who are outside of Jesus Christ, for the wicked, the ark is no haven. The flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder and the earthquake and the the great hailstorm, those are indications of the terror that this view of the temple, symbolically, of the triumph of God would have upon the wicked because they will realize we are shut out. We have this ferocious storm, these calamities keeping us away. You know, there's much more in the book of Revelation about the glory of heaven and about the judgment of God. Here we find this, this, this great introduction to these blessed realities. And we're going to see these truths reaffirmed over and over as every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is indeed Lord. But I'd like to just, let's draw this to a close, if we may. Two main applications. First of all, in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And why do the kings take counsel against the together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Consider some of the kingdoms of our world today. United States, Great Britain, Switzerland, Scotland, Italy, much of North Africa. Why do I mention these nations in particular? Because at various times in our history, these nations had a powerful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. But for the most part, we do not see the rulers of those countries today sympathetic the biblical truth or the authority of God. They have thrown off those bonds and taken counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. They live in denial of the authority of God over their kingdoms and over their lives. I'm not talking here about communist North Korea or, or communist and, 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 and uh, atheistic China or the, the Muslim and Hindu nations of the world. I'm talking about countries that once considered themselves paragons or bastions of Christianity from which the gospel went to the world. And yet now, in most cases, the rulers of these nations have thrown off the bonds, as it were, have thrown off any allegiance to God. Now, let me ask you, is God offended by this? Is God offended when nations cast off biblical authority and truth? It's not a hard question. It's not a trick question. The answer is, of course he is. Is he troubled by that? Psalm 2 says, no, he laughs. He looks at them and goes, what a bunch of pathetic imposters. He sees these, these puny efforts of men trying to throw off his bonds, trying to, trying to overcome his authority, and he holds them in derision. He lets them go as far as his providence dictates, but not one step further. But the day's going to come when Jesus is going to judge the rulers of the earth. He's going to judge all those who have rejected him, both great and small. He will rebuke them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his wrath. It's not, we don't see that happening in our day. But we do see glimmers 
of what we might consider victories for truth and righteousness from time to time. In the spiritual realm, we see the gospel advancing in some places. Uh, it's, it's incredible. In some parts of the world, in Africa and much of South America, it's amazing some of the things God's doing in some of these places. And we see socially, socially some victories. The Dobbs ruling that outlawed Roe v. Wade just a few weeks ago, we consider that a wonderful victory. And if you look at the vitriol and the anger and the hatred of those who have thrown off the bonds of biblical authority, you can see just how much Satan hates truth and righteousness. The response of the world is just vitriolic. It's unbelievable. Nothing compared to what we'll see the closer and closer it gets when the Lord comes. And there's this outpouring of calamity and they will not repent no matter what. And we just scratch our heads and say, how is that possible? We know that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We know by faith that he has all power over the rulers of this world, that the, the heart of the king is in his hand. We know that by faith, but we don't see that in our present day. We, we, we might get glimpses from time to time that he has steered a ruler in a direction of righteousness or, or a court or a legislature in the direction of righteousness, or maybe even in the media. But usually it's only glimpses. His providence, his, his purposes and plans are still oftentimes mysterious to us as this world ignores his authority, his truth, his righteousness, his glory, his majesty. But when the seventh trumpet blows, his power will be manifested visibly and no one will be able to ignore it. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the only thing they can do. So what does God say we ought to do now? He says you ought to kiss the Son. You ought to seek his favor. You ought to serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. See, we ought to live today in light of that day. Be sure we're ready. Second thing. As a final application, I just want to ask you, how, how much do you think about rewards in heaven? You know, the Lord Jesus spoke about rewards many times. In the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men uh, uh, persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name. Rejoice and be glad, for so they treated the prophets before you. And great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. How can I rejoice when it hurts? Well, because you have a great reward stored up for you in heaven. Paul spoke about looking forward to his reward in 2 Timothy 4. Toward the end of his life, he says to Timothy in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. He says to servants in Colossians chapter 3, Whatever you do, work heartily or with all your heart, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. And here you have the servant who is toiling and laboring for his master and gets none of the benefit of the proceeds of the profit his master is gaining from his labor, saying, why am I doing this? 
And Paul says, you just keep serving because you're going to receive an inheritance from the Lord so much greater than what your master or what his heirs are receiving as the fruit of your labors. So you just keep serving because you're not really serving your master. You're serving the Lord Christ. And that was true then in the context of slavery. It's true today in the context of employment where you may feel like, why am I doing this job? Well, you just keep serving the Lord Christ and focus on that reward. John warns us in 2 John chapter 1 or John, 2 John verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The rewards in Scripture are held out as motivators for us to godly living, to faithful and even sacrificial service. Jesus promised the seven churches rewards for those who would overcome. And these heavenly rewards are a common theme in Scripture. Once you start looking for them, you see them everywhere. I'm not sure we think about those promises the way we ought to. John Piper wrote an entire book called Future Grace, where he talks about the motivation for for faithful and sacrificial Christian living comes by believing in what God has promised, the future grace, and not simply what he's done in the past. As wonderful and, uh, and powerful as what he's already done and, and the gratitude we should have for what he's done, it's the promises for future grace he holds out for us to motivate us to faithful obedience. One Puritan writer called the promises of God bribes to holiness. Maybe we ought to say incentives, because bribe has so many bad connotations. But I want to ask you, as we wrap it up, what are these rewards? We don't really fully know. But I think there are five categories, and with this will be done. Earlier we talked about there's the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Would that not be enough? To hear your Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, would be glorious. A second reward, if you're laboring under criticism, and skepticism, and derision, and hatred, and accusation, and you know that one day you will be vindicated by your Lord. He will establish and make everything right. And not only will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, but they'll also have to confess that those of us who follow him were right after all. That vindication is a sweet thing. Thirdly, the glory of heaven, we're told, outweighs present suffering. They're not even worth comparing. I can't conceive of a glory that is so great that it makes some of the suffering that I'm aware of in this life seem inconsequential. But that's what God says, and we ought to labor to conceive of that kind of glory so that it causes something to rise up within us and say, we can endure, we can persevere, we can hang on, we can bring forth fruit in the midst of hard things. Because there's a glory that's infinitely greater. And of course, we've read these crowns of righteousness, the crown of life, the, 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 the recognition, the honor, the esteem, the glory in store for those who are His, an inheritance that never will perish, spoil, or fade. And then finally, in chapter 21, <clears throat> we find this very tender description of the saints in heaven who the Lord says there will be no more death and sorrow, mourning, or crying, or pain because the old order has passed away. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes and make all things new. That's a comfort unlike anything you could ever experience in this life. That's worth looking forward to. That's worth looking forward to. May God give us grace to believe that our enemies will be defeated 
and the kings of the earth, however powerful they may, be, they may appear to be, that the influence of this world, how, however powerful and impactful it may appear to be, it will be overturned, and Jesus will reign, and he will reward. He will come and bring his reward with him and give to all those who have trusted in his name. Amen.